Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Mulki. Let's get started. So we had a lot to talk about with Parker McMullen Bushman. Parker is currently the VP of Community Programs, Education and Inclusion at Butterfly Pavilion in Denver, Colorado. And she is also the founder of Eco-Inclusive, an organization that's committed to creating healthy and diverse organizational and community ecosystems. We started off by talking about Parker's experiences as an African-American woman in the environmental field and her role in creating inclusive and relevant content and experiences when educating her community about the importance of invertebrates. Much of the conversation focuses on how she's trying to change perceptions and undo stereotypes through conducting workshops on diversity, equity, and inclusion. She also explains how she presents to her clients the value of DEI for their company and how to address unconscious biases in hiring practices, for example. So it's a lot of great content and I love it because I relate deeply to Parker's story as I also try to embed my values of DEI in how I develop water education campaigns and how I work with utilities and nonprofits committed to increasing awareness on the value of water. I know that's a mouthful, but without further ado, here is Parker. So let's start off the conversation with you telling us a little bit how you developed your passion for nature. Sure. Okay. It had a lot to do with my mother. And I only realized that as an adult, having worked in the environmental field for a long time, but I didn't realize, always realize that this was kind of a field that I was destined for, even though my mom was a huge environmentalist. And I think that's because what she did, she didn't call environmentalism. She didn't call conservationism. You know, she just had a way about her where she really cared for the land. She grew up in South Carolina in Charleston on a little island called James Island and grew up on a on a farm that was kind of sandwiched in between two pieces of marsh that whole area my family lived in for for many years on Shrimp Street and Shrimp Street <laughs> she, It's a funny name. It is. It's a funny name and she she loved it and but when she got older, she, you know, decided to to move away. She moved to New York, and that's where she met my dad. I was born in the Bronx, and they spent a lot of time when I was a kid getting us out into nature, even though we were in the middle of one of the biggest cities in the world, right? She spent a lot of time taking us outside, taking us to the parks, helping us to climb trees, helping us to walk through fields and helping us to develop a real connection to nature and the outdoors. And even though my mom had that love of the outdoors and was doing things like figuring out how to take us fishing, figuring out how to help us visit a working farm, telling us about the animals that we would see, I never thought of myself as 
you know, liking nature or liking being outdoors. Because when I thought of someone who liked the outdoors, I usually pictured someone who was like climbing, scaling the side of a mountain or just really doing some rough and rugged things. And I didn't know that my interactions with nature counted really for for many, many years. And so my mom, it's really my mom who gave me that connection. And as I got to be an adult, I enjoyed going outside. I still enjoyed being out in nature. And it was probably another year, maybe two or three years into my first job of being an a camp counselor and then an environmental educator before I realized, oh, those experiences in in nature and the outdoors really shaped me and they were important experiences and they were really valid experiences as well. So I think that that's really at the core of it. My mom, a little Southern Belle <laughs> who made her <laughs> way to the big city <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and raised three girls with a love of adventure. That's such a beautiful story. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. I'm realizing through my conversations with other podcast guests that there was there's a common thread of an adult being a part of their childhood who allowed them an opportunity to get exposed to nature. And like you, I didn't realize what an influence my father had in exposing us to the natural environment through going to the local national parks in Kenya. And yeah, it wasn't until honestly having these conversations with you and the other guests that I was like, oh yeah, okay, I guess it did. (laughs) Yeah, I always wondered where it came from. You know, and I think that's such a huge part of my love of the work that I I do, you know, helping people to put words to it and helping people to find their story within the kind of bigger conservation movement. You know, I look at people like my grandmother who grew her own vegetables, you know, who loved her her little fruit trees in her backyard, her peach tree and her fig tree, and would make food from that, who reused her Tupperware, right, over and over and over again, who rewashed her Ziploc bags, who dried her clothes on the line. All of these you know, environmental actions that we encourage people to do, but we aren't really uplifting people who are already doing it and helping them to find their connection. I think about my uncle who rode his bike 20 miles to work like wow. every day, right? And he, mm-hmm. he didn't he didn't drive a car. He didn't have a car. But like that connection, like why wasn't he called an environmentalist? Why wasn't his carbon saving recognized? Why wasn't he called a long distance biker? You know, like all of these kind of words that we use to describe people who are using the outdoors in those ways. And because of the messages that we see all the time of people who are doing those things, usually the picture is of someone who is white. And as Mm -hmm. a Black woman, I didn't 
like even I, when I pictured that, when I said, okay, someone who really cares about the environment, my picture was of a white person. And so being able to change that overall narrative, it's not that we're that we say that people of color can't do these things, right? We want people of color to do those things, but we don't normally tell that story, right? We don't normally show those uses as also being environmentally friendly, right? We are usually telling a different story. So I just think it's so important to think about that and think about how do all of our natural, how do all of our stories of nature, of being outside, it doesn't necessarily need to be climbing the side of a mountain, but a church picnic, right? Outdoors, enjoying the environment, family picnics, taking a walk, riding your bike, like all of those things are, are outdoor activities that are really, really important. And we can help people connect to nature and learn early on, hopefully earlier then you and I learn that that connection is is super, super special. Yeah, that's so true. And something that you said earlier on is that we don't think of people of color being environmentalists. I had a conversation with Fred Tutman, who's the Pawtuxent Riverkeeper, and he was saying that it's not that people of color aren't in the environmental movement. It's just that they're invisible to the mainstream environmental movement. And that to me was, again, just a, a reoccurring theme that I'm hearing from other experts like yourself sharing, you know, what is an environment or who is an environmentalist? And it's breaking through those stereotypes or those norms of what or who an environmentalist looks like. So there's this overarching theme of you being an educator. Could you share with us highlights of some of your experiences as far as environmental education goes? Sure, I would love to. So my current role is I work for an invertebrate zoo called Butterfly Pavilion here in Colorado. I'm the vice president of community engagement, education, and inclusion at Butterfly Pavilion. But my background in conservation, environmental education, and outdoor recreation spans over 22 years. Mm. And my master's is a master's of natural resources from the University of Wisconsin, Stevens Point, uh, with a focus on environmental education and interpretation. Over my career, I've had the opportunity to work at a wide variety of different organizations that were really looking to bring conservation, engagement, and impact to local communities. I spent a good portion of my career working in residential environmental learning centers where people would come and actually stay over, usually kids in school, sometimes adults, sometimes families, but they would come and stay at the center and then we would take them into the local environment, really helping them to connect to the different ecosystems learn about the different ecosystems. And what's most important is learn about how they can help impact those ecosystems and the ecosystems at home. 
I really love the job that I'm currently doing because invertebrates, you know, insects, spiders out in the ocean, our squid and crabs and all of these animals, they make up a good portion of the life on the planet. About 97% of the life on the planet is invertebrate life. What? And it's really cool because when people come and visit our zoo, it's an important experience that they can then take back home because invertebrates are everywhere. Bees are everywhere. Butterflies are everywhere. And so people can come here and we work really hard with my interpretation team, my education team, and my exhibits team to think about okay, how do we create engagement that helps people understand the importance of invertebrates to their life? And how do we give them some concrete actions that they can take when they return home? And it's really cool because when they return home, they can see invertebrates right there and they have, they've built this connection and can say, well, what can I do in my own backyard to change the habitat to really help bees and butterflies and other invertebrates that are living really close to us? And so I love that the material is really, really relatable and that I can be a big part of the mission of Butterfly Pavilion to foster an appreciation of invertebrates by educating our communities and public about the need to protect them and care for their threatened habitats locally and globally. And that because invertebrates are kind of the baseline of you know any ecosystem that can have a real compounding impact on our habitats as a whole and the other types of the animals that live within those habitats. So environmental education, I think, is so needed right now. People need that connection to the natural world and they need to understand the role that they play in the natural world. And There's a lot of kind of doom and gloom out there because we are in just a real dire situation with our our planetary systems right now. But I think the goal of environmental education is to give people hope so that they can feel like they can make a difference and that they have some actionable tools that they can take back to their daily lives and make changes that can help have an effect on our planet as a whole. I don't know if you heard me exclaim what (laughs) when you (laughs) said that 97% of our animal kingdom is made up of invertebrates. I had no idea, but it makes complete sense. So as an environmental educator, how do you get people to change behavior? Well, I think you have to help people understand what's in it for them, right? And mm-hmm. help people really have a a tie into that message. Like people need to understand how does this work for them? Really, I mean, there's the future, but also in the here and now, like how does it relate to them? And people don't often 
know that. People don't often understand that working on our local environments now helps them to have better air quality, right? Helps them to have uh, healthier ecosystems where not only invertebrates can thrive, but humans can thrive. You also need to make it really relatable to them. So I'm I'm really excited here. I said earlier that exhibits is a part of under my purview and my position. And we have a really awesome exhibit coming up called Azteca. And I'm so excited about it because it was born out of people's interests in how invertebrates have have a tie to their history. And we talked to community members. We had focus groups. We did surveys to figure out what topic would be interesting for folks to to learn about and decided on invertebrates in the Aztec empire. And so that seems like, oh, a really long time ago, right? But we're actually making connections into current communities. And we wanted to make sure that the local Latinx community had a really strong voice in talking about this particular exhibit. And so we've worked with local schools in North Glen to talk with their students who their school population, they have a really high Latinx population within their their middle school and high school and elementary school. And those students said, what would we be interested in learning about, right? And then we took those and we went to local artists in the Latinx and Hispanic communities and said, how can you help us bring this story uh, to life? And then we went and talked with indigenous communities that are that tied to the Aztec culture and, you know, said, can't, how can we bring this story out into life? And how can we tell about the ties from that ancient culture to modern day culture in Mexico and here in Denver? And then how can we help people connect to that? So by telling this story about ancient heritage and ancestry and their uses of invertebrates in the past allows us to tell the story of how invertebrates are useful and helpful to the present and then being able to tie in monarch conservation and how these ancient symbols of uh, that monarch migration, right, that happens every year during the Day of the Dead celebrations down in Mexico, how that is a tie back to ancestry and that we need to protect that tie, that we need to track and save these monarchs so we can continue, so our children's children's children can see this amazing migration and understand their connection to it and understand the importance of the species of animals. Mm -hmm. And so helping people to have like that tie to it, how does this relate to me and my life and in a way that makes me feel like, yeah, I want to protect 
these animals because it's important to my heritage and my ancestors knew their importance and I know their importance today and I want to continue that tradition, right? So that's just mm-hmm. one one way and one small story that we are working on telling here on site. But there are so many different ways to connect people to these messages. And we haven't always been great at it, right? We haven't always been able to help people to see their story in the conservation message. But I think as a as an industry, as a field, we're starting to understand that importance and starting to understand that if we want people to take action, they need to be able to see how it ties to them, how these conservation efforts are important to them currently in their everyday life, important right. to the people who came before them and important to the people who will come after them. Right, right. That exhibit just sounds amazing. I, I wish I could just go to Denver to <laughs> visit it. When, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Like I've never, not never, but it's it's really rare that you see a celebration or an acknowledgement of indigenous local knowledge and history as like embedded into an environmental education exhibit. And that theme of inclusion is something that I I really appreciate in your efforts as at the Butterfly Pavilion. So I think that's, again, it's, it's fascinating to me and just encouraging at the same time that you're able to include values of diversity and inclusion in your environmental education practices. So one of the things that I'm curious to know is how did you become aware of diversity and inclusion issues? And this also kind of speaks to you also having uh, DNI workshops, working with various environmental organizations in Denver. So could you tell us a little bit about your DNI initiatives? Sure. I really do have a passion for equity and inclusion in conservation and the outdoors. And I think my interest in justice, accessibility, equity issues kind of developed from my personal experiences kind of facing the unequal representation of people of color in this field. I have had the opportunity to work in lots of different conservation organizations and to work with professional associations that were all kind of tackling these same issues and trying to figure out how do we bring people into this conversation and I started studying it as well because people would often look (laughs) <laughs> to me as the only person of color in these spaces to be like, what should we do? And I used to joke, you know, if I had a website called 1-800-HireBlackPeople.com, I'd be a millionaire because people, <laughs> because people are so interested, you know, and they're like, we, we want to make the connection, but we just have no idea. After studying myself and really trying to understand this, I realized that it wasn't just about putting out the welcome mat, but it was also about changing our organizations, changing the very structure 
of the movement, right? How, why is it that people don't feel connected in certain areas to this conservation movement? And it's because their stories haven't traditionally been told and they have not felt within these organizations that they are welcome, included, that they really have an authentic seat at the table. And so several years ago, I formed an organization called Eco-Inclusive. And eco-inclusive, it's it's kind of multifold. You know, there's a couple of different things that I'm doing with it. One is is those trainings and workshops because you don't know what you don't know, right? And so right. in order for organizations to really start to make those internal changes and really start to look at their practices and say, what is it that is welcoming and what is it that's not welcoming, then we're not going to have people stay in those organizations. So organizations have to be able to make those changes. They have to be able to change the narrative. I was doing a workshop several weeks ago and you know we were talking about why does this particular organization that I was working with, why were their staff all white? folks, especially when they've been trying to make changes, like they want to welcome people in. And it's a a core part of the changes they're trying to make internally. And someone voiced a question that I think a lot of people think internally, but maybe don't often voice. And that person said, well, do Black people even really care about the outdoors or conservation? Like, do they like the outdoors? Do they care about conservation? Because maybe we're trying to force them into a field or a job field that they just really don't like, like they don't want to be a part of. And, you know, the room got quiet. And I said, you know, if you're if you're asking, do Black people like going outside, care about their local habitats, fight and are activists for saving habitats and their environment, right? You look back at the environmental justice movement, all of these things, then the answer is a resounding yes. Like, people, I'm here, right? <laughs> as yeah. as a, a big example in front of you, but there are so many people who care and are doing this work and care about their local environments and care about the air that they breathe and their habitats that are degrading and they want to do things to protect and save them. I was like, so if you're asking if that's the question, then yes, Black people care. However, maybe it's a different question that we need to be asking, right? Are our organizations, do Black people want to be a part of organizations that they don't see themselves represented in, that they don't feel like they have a voice in, that they go into and they feel like there's microaggressions or, you know, other undercurrents that they don't want to deal with on a daily basis? then the answer would be no. And so we have to like understand the difference between those questions just because people aren't 
a part of our organizations doesn't mean that people don't have a conservation ethic, that they're not thinking about these things. Oftentimes they're in situations where they're unable to make change or they don't know what the next steps are for making change. So they're they're stuck or they don't have the resources, you know, or the time. And so they're stuck. And so we need to be asking different questions. And so eco-inclusive helps organizations do that helps organizations get resources to ask those questions, help them to do internal kind of auditing to figure out what are the changes we need to be looking at, right? So that we can genuinely make organizations that are welcoming for, for all people. And it's been great. You know, I've had the opportunity to work with organizations across the United States and to have this conversation on lots of different levels and to really tune in and talk with people about you know how to make those changes. There's also a Facebook page and we have lots of conversations through the Facebook page and the attached group, which is called Summit for Action. And Summit for Action was born out of these kind of local summits that I'm running here in the Denver area where people are getting together for two days to really hone in on these topics and these issues and say, how can we make the changes that are really going to be important for our organizations and important in the movement? And how do we move these conversations past the talking phase to the action phase? And so we have uh, multiple, we're doing three different events this year focused on different areas. And that has been a a great conversation. And the other thing that I do under Eco Inclusive, besides Summit for Action and the workshops, is a new endeavor that I started last year called Earth Queen. And the queen is actually spelled K-W-E-E-N and stands for Keep Widening Environmental Engagement Narratives. And Mm. the idea around Earth Queen is one of the big theories or tenets behind studying unconscious bias is that every day we are inundated with pictures and sounds and then just different examples of certain concepts. And we file those things away and that's where we de- how we develop our stereotype. So when you have a stereotype of what a typical rock climber looks like, right? You go back to that mental database, that file, and you think about the pictures that you've seen or the movies or television shows or whatever depictions you've seen of that type of person. And then that develops the stereotype that you have of that type of person. So Earth Queen is about putting out a different narrative, different pictures, different stories of other people who maybe don't fit that typical mold being involved in outdoor activities. So showing different bodies like people of color, people with disabilities, uh, non-gender conforming bodies, like how many 
different types because there's so many different types of people that you see outdoors, but those aren't necessarily the pictures that we show. And so by providing that, then how do we help people to have new pictures for their mental folders of who fits into certain categories and start to change those stereotypes? How do we widen that narrative about who's engaged in the outdoors, who loves the outdoors, and who's willing to work to make a difference in the outdoors? Right. Right. So like you said, there's, I don't know if the word is a misconception that people of color don't care about the environment, but there's actually research that shows that communities of color care more about the environment and in some cases more than even white communities. And we can include those that research in our show notes. But it's so right. What you said is we don't often see rather images of people of color or just like a diverse group of people, regardless of even like their race or gender, like you were talking about disabled individuals in natural spaces. And it's it's so important to break through those those norms. So I I really appreciate that you incorporate that into your work. So in terms of one thing that you said earlier about the workshop where somebody said, or you were working with an organization that is mostly, has mostly a white staff, how do you go about advising such an organization? Because there are many of such organizations. However, yeah, they don't know where to to begin. And it's not only just about hiring for diversity, but it's also creating an inclusive environment so that you can retain that diversity. Yeah. So do you provide any kind of specific advice on what organizations that are struggling with the lack of diversity, but are also keen on genuinely improving on that? Yeah. So for me, what I try to provide for organizations is is a a starting place, right? So through the eco-inclusive Facebook page and the blog, organizations can start to see resources for making that change. And then I encourage people to do trainings with their staff because until their staff is all on the same page, right? It's hard to make those changes until people understand the importance of it and why would we even be doing this. And you know, not everybody understands that the truth is if we are going to move this conservation messaging to conservation impact, if we are going to have everybody kind of rowing in the same direction when it comes to saving the planet, right? We have to create organizations that are bringing these different stories in. And so people have to have training to understand what those things are. They have to have training to understand how their unconscious bias and sometimes conscious bias plays into creating organizations that aren't as welcoming as people you know, want them to be, believe them to be. And then once they have those understandings, then they can say, okay, how do we break down this narrative and make it more inclusive? How do we really bring people in and allow them to thrive within situations? Because it's not always about culture fit. 
right? It's not always about who's going to fit in and walk the talk exactly as we do it or talk to talk. It's about culture add and who's going to add value to our organization. And when we start to understand that and understand the organizational changes that we need to make, then we can create environments where people can thrive, right? People with differences can thrive and their voices are heard and valued and they feel heard and valued and they want to be a part of the bigger mission. Right. And one of the other things that I've seen some organizations doing is they won't hire just like one person of color. They'll hire sort of like a cohort of people of color within like a short amount of time. And what's good about that approach is that it creates sort of like a supportive environment for that group. But it also at the same time demonstrates that the organization is truly committed to creating a diverse work diverse and inclusive work environment. Yeah. And it's tough conversations, right? Organizations Mm -hmm. need to really have an understanding that we're talking about deep, deep changes. We're talking about if you really do the work with the strength and vigor that it needs, like you're changing the way that you do business. And we need to value that different types of diversity with the same value. Like it's easy right now to say, if you look at a board that is all male, it is kind of acceptable to say we need females on this board, right? We we have to get more women. And people don't say, oh, but we need qualified women because they understand that yeah, we of course, we need qualified women and there are right. lots of qualified women out there. But when you start talking about things like racial diversity, people pull back and they're like, oh, well, you know, do we, I mean, can we say that? Can we, can we say that we need more people of color and what does that mean? And what does it mean to look for people and, oh, well, we need qualified people, you know, and it kind of shuts down conversations when, yeah, just like you would look for any other skill set, right? We need a lawyer on the board okay, yeah, get a lawyer. And there are lots of lawyers that are people of color, right? And so you kind of hiring for that, looking for that, we need to value it as a strength that is going to add more to our business. We There's lots of studies out there that diverse teams have better results right? And are Mm -hmm. more productive. And so how do you get there? And how do we realize that that diversity is a strength? It's a commodity that we need to be actively seeking, right? And trying to make happen. Right. So when you're talking to people in your workshops, when you're talking to participants about the value and importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion into their organization and their practices, what have you found to resonate with the groups in terms of giving them that aha moment of like, oh yeah, 
biases do play a role in how we make our decisions or how we create inclusive environments. And aha, uh-huh, like I know that I do have unconscious biases uh, and everyone does, but how do I actively prevent those biases from impacting the like prosperity of another, the economic and social prosperity of another individual? Yeah, there, well, there's a couple of things that I talk about. One, when we make like the business case for equity and inclusion, we talk about changing demographics and within our communities and our society, our demographics are changing really rapidly. It's estimated that by 2023, our population that is 18 or younger will be 50% people of color. Right. So we're hitting that threshold with Mm. the youth that um, we will become majority minority among our youth. And then it's projected out that by 2050, our population will be all of our population will be majority people of color. And those estimates are actually, we'll know more after the census, but lots of studies are coming out that are saying that actually may happen quicker than we think. And so thinking about those demographic changes, then we understand that, wow, if we want our organizations to stay relevant, if we want our message to stay relevant, we need to be reaching a wider section of our community. And people like to think that if we don't have people of color in our organization, it's because people of color don't care about these issues or aren't doing things about these issues, but they're really, they're wrong. People of color are out here making their own organizations because they're not feeling included within these other organizations. And as the population shifts, those organizations are the ones that are going to reach a wider group, have be more relevant, right? And our organizations, we risk our organizations falling to the wayside because these other organizations are coming up and they are actually impacting more people and bring, having bringing more people into the work that they're doing. So One is about relevance. Two, when we talk about unconscious bias, we talk about how unconscious bias affects systems. And there are biases out there like heteronormative bias, right? That relationships are best among men and women. And that's the way we have set up our society, right? And we've had to go in and create laws to retrofit to that bias, that bias that this is what a relationship should look like. And I still get papers to sign for my kids to get into certain programs that say mom's name and dad's name, right? Mm. Still these biases are put into our uh, society. And if you are, oftentimes when you have a privilege that the bias is favorable toward your lifestyle, then those who don't have that privilege are invisible to you. You don't think about it. You don't even think about it as a privilege. You don't even think about the many ways every day that that one bias shows up 
in all of the work that that we do, right? This kind of gender bias and that there's two distinct genders and that those genders belong in relationships together affect uh, like so many different industries, affect ads, affect songs that we write about relationships, affect clothing, like it, it goes really, really deep. And so starting to understand how those biases that we have affect huge systems and then people that don't have the privilege within those systems have to try and work and fit into those systems and systems that weren't designed for them into Mm -hmm. systems that don't acknowledge their way of life and the things that they hold dear And so we then have to break down what are the different ways that these biases are showing up. And it's not easy because it is invisible. You have to take a step back and say, okay, let me look through this bias, this cisgender privilege. Let me look at my male privilege. Let me look at white privilege. Let me look at, you know, all of these different types of privileges that we hold in our lives and see how we have built into the system things that benefit those type of identities. And the thing about talking about privilege isn't that we want to take privileges away from people, right? That's not... Not at all. It's not the case. We just want to provide systems, ecosystems, organizations that are able to have those same privileges for everyone. One privilege that I talk about under white privilege, because white privilege, it's, it's a polarizing word, right? People get really upset sometimes when they they hear that because of the image that they think people have of it. Oh, they're trying to say I didn't work hard. They're trying to say I don't deserve where I've gotten in life, right? Right. But thinking about white privilege can be just as simple as thinking about Band-Aids and what color is a nude color Band-Aid, right? That even that color of nude, what does that color look like? Because it's not what I look like nude, right? But we set whiteness as the default, right? And that a nude Band-Aid looks this color. Just a few years ago, we recently got uh, ballet slippers that were made in a color other than that, that nude color, right? Mm. And most people don't even think about that. Like, oh, oh, why are ballet slippers that color, right? And so having people understand that acknowledging privilege isn't about saying that you don't get your color Band-Aid and you don't get your color pantyhose or your color ballet slippers, but it's about saying that I I get my color as well and that we don't say that the default for everything is whiteness, right? That the default for nude is whiteness. We acknowledge that there's lots of different individuals within that spectrum and we provide for, for all of them. We don't all have to live by this one default. And so I think that conversation within organizations is so important because we don't often acknowledge 
those things. We don't acknowledge where our ableism shows up, where racism shows up, where all of these different sexism things show up. And so we have to stop and have that conversation. And then once we acknowledge it, then we can say, okay, so what are changes that we can make that will make our organizations more welcoming because we are acknowledging these biases and resetting what the default is. Yeah. You know, I didn't know until recently that, you know, having the nude bandages was actually sort of like a way of, I don't know, not representing (laughs) other skin tones and I think in my mind, it was like, oh, we've always, they've always been nude. So you don't kind of like question it in a sense as a person of color until it's brought to your realization. You're like, oh yeah, why don't they have like a brown one or a black one or just like different (laughs) tones? I was like, oh my gosh. Yeah. I was just really shocked to learn that. Yeah. So we are reaching the end of our conversation, but I wanted to, you know, you've shared so much great information and knowledge with us. And thank you so much for that. I think we, in the environmental space, we don't get to have conversations enough about the importance and the critical need for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And so also as an educator, it just places you in a great position or just like, yeah, because you already have that that talent and that patience and that empathy. So, you know, through your journey, I wanted to ask you, what do you wish you had known before you started? I think one of the most important things that I wish I had known is that I could be myself. Like it took me several years to be able to find my voice. You know, I'm working within these organizations that I loved and doing the work that I loved, but feeling that in order to fit in, I had the toe a line that wasn't truly who I was. I had to do a lot of code switching, right? Mm. To be accepted. And I wish that I could look at myself back then and say, be yourself, bring more of yourself to the table, uh, really work with the people that you work with to help them understand that, you know, we can create something that is wider and more inclusive and find your voice for this work earlier on because it's so important and and so needed, right? So that, mm-hmm. yeah, that's what I wish I, I had known and had done. Okay. I have a question. There's a bit of background noise. Is it just that people are starting to come into the office and have a party? Yeah, so it. Oh, goodness. I'm, I'm so sorry. I was hoping it wouldn't be picked up. So we have a large group in uh, using our ballroom today here at okay. the Butterfly Pavilion. And they're a group of realtors. And oh. they blast the music. They're getting, they're getting it started. They're playing Let's Get It Started. Oh, my gosh. It's like 8.30 in the morning. People. Are up and about, dang! <laughs> so I'm sorry for the background. Oh, no, no, no worries. Um, no worries at all. I just uh, I wanted to to check with you, and I don't know. This conversation is just amazing. So really appreciate it. I have a lot more questions for you, but I'll just you know we're reaching the top of the hour here, so I'll just get into our lightning round. I have a series of four questions, and just tell me whatever kind of comes to your mind. 
So the first question here is, what have you read, heard, or watched lately that has influenced you the most? Oh, goodness. <laughs> well, I'm soaking up so much lately. And I think what has really been influencing me has been connecting with stories of from people of color or people of other marginalized groups and being really selective about the reading that I'm doing right now, that it is, it comes from a very authentic perspective that it is people telling about how they are affected by different impacts. And so I think I've been reading some of Robert Bullard's things and just people from Indigenous Voices and just really trying to make sure that a lot of the reading I'm doing right now are, are clued into uh, communities being able to tell their own stories. Yeah. What's a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your work? I think empathy is, I don't know if you can call that a personal habit, but I think it's a muscle that you have to stretch and the understanding that, you know, I just believe that people are good and people really want to see changes that benefits their, their fellow human beings and that it's not an easy journey or an easy change. And so having empathy for people, for the people that I, I work with, the people who are questioning, the people who maybe aren't even on the path of questioning yet and understanding that there's so many facets to the human experience and trying to work to plug into that and be empathetic because we get further when we have empathy for our, our fellow humans. Yeah, I think that's totally a personal habit. It's something that you have to learn how to develop and just implement in every single conversation and action. And I've had to kind of build or really stretch that muscle, as you said. So the next question here is, usually I, I will ask what's the best piece of advice you received, but yeah. because you... You can answer that, but I'm also curious to know what advice would you give to those who are considering a profession in the environment? Yeah, so I'm going to say that may be the same answer for both. Right, right. And that answer I received from a, a mentor who's amazing. His name was Ken Voorhees, and he was the executive director at the Great Smoky Mountains Institute in Tremont. And Ken told me, there's a place for you here. And I really needed to hear that. You know, I told Ken, when I look at these other organizations and I think about who's in charge, they're not people that look like me. And when mm -hmm. I think about who a board wants to promote and hire to run things, and I said, one day I'm going to be running things. And, and you are. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know that a board looks at me. And so I worry that if this career is something that is something I can do and get far in and make a difference in. Mm -hmm. And Kim told me there, there's a place for you. There's a place for you here and things are changing and people want to make those changes. And so stick with it. And I did. 
And that's the advice that I would have for other people. There's a place for you and it may seem hard and you're going to have to deal with a lot because I, you know, I've had to deal with a lot, but we need your voice so badly and we need those perspectives so badly and people aren't going to feel connected unless I'm here and unless you're here. So it's important you're needed and there's a place for you here. Yeah. It's really uplifting. There's a place for you here and stick with it. (laughs) So the final question then is who is your personal hero? Hmm. Well, you know, there's so many, but I guess I'm going to have to go with my mom and she's been past several years now, but she taught me how to be a strong woman, how to date my views. And most of all, she gave me that tie to nature and the outdoors that has shaped my entire life. And I will always be forever grateful to her for that. And she raised us with that love, me and my other two sisters. And so she's always going to be my hero. Mm -hmm. Thanks, mom. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So we've come to the end of our conversation here. Uh, So lastly, just want to ask you, how can we follow you on your journey? Yeah. So please feel free to to reach out. Eco-Inclusive has a website, ecoinclusive.org. There's a Facebook page. There's also a group there and I love connecting with people. I'm also on LinkedIn, Charnel Parker McMullen Bushman. And I have a Facebook page for myself, Parker McMullen Bushman. And if you know, if you want to connect, just reach out because that's what I'm here for. I really like the Facebook page, Eco Inclusive, because there's really great articles that the group shares. So I really like it. Is there anything else that you would like to add before we pause our conversation? (laughs) No, this has been really great. And I'm really excited to see how Breaking Green Ceilings continues to get this message out there. Thank you so much for having me on. I, I love to be a part of this conversation. Well, thank you for being a part of this conversation. It's been an absolute honor. So thank you so much, Parker, and we will be in touch. All right. Have a nice day. Thank you. Hey, all Thanks for listening to Breaking Green Ceilings. If you'd like to hear more episodes with change-making environmentalists, head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast. You can find me online on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like on iTunes. You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and whoever you think will be inspired by the wisdom of our change makers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, keep breaking through those green ceilings.